to It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. We're so sorry it's happening again. Yes, we're sorry that this podcast <laughs> is happening once again. That was a reference. I know. Okay. I'm Caroline. <laughs> and I'm Brian. I love this episode. Yeah, I think this is one of the all-time classic episodes of Twin Peaks. There's not a lot of dissent. No, no. It's really as good as anything David Lynch ever did, I think. Yes. And we're going to talk a lot about what makes this episode special. But uh, this time around, we've decided to do something we've done in the past, which is pick a larger theme or topic of discussion as a as a lens to view all the details of the episode through. And so I think we have a lot of discussion points, but the the big one that we're going to start with here. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, not quite timely since it's still September and not October. Right. But the question is, is Twin Peaks horror? Yes. And that's a difficult question to answer because first we have to say, okay, well, how are we defining horror? That's something that a lot of people have argued about. It's not just something that scares or frightens you because there are lots of movies and TV shows where people get killed, where tense things happen, where Mm -hmm. frightening things happen. And they're thrillers. I mean, you look at the career of somebody like Alfred Hitchcock. He mostly didn't do horror. He did a few films which you can absolutely call horror, like Psycho or The Birds. But most of his movies are suspense thrillers. And it's important to look at, okay, what is the difference? And I think I'm going to bring up a quote from... H.P. Lovecraft, and just to get this out of the way, we do not endorse all of H.P. Lovecraft's opinions, okay? No, nor the names of his various cats. Right. He was a crazy racist from a crazy racist time, and even then, people who knew him were like, wow, dude, tone down the racism. But he knew about scary things, and so I'm just going to read this. This is from his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature. And he was really defining what he called cosmic horror, which is what he wrote, but I think it's more generally applicable. This type of fear literature must not be confounded with a type externally similar, but psychologically wildly different. The literature of mere physical fear and the mundanely gruesome. These things are not the literature of cosmic fear in its purest sense. The true weird tale has something more than secret murder, bloody bones, or a sheeted form clanking chains according to rule, a certain atmosphere of breathless and unexplainable dread of outer unknown forces must be present, and there must be a hint, expressed with a seriousness and portentousness becoming its subject, of that most terrible conception of the human brain, a malign and particular suspension or defeat of those fixed laws of nature which are our only safeguard against the assaults of chaos and the demons of unplumbed space. How Lovecraft is defining horror, and he's talking about it in supernatural or cosmic terms, but we don't necessarily have to, is horror is something that portrays the laws of nature breaking down and not just, you know, the laws of society. Because again, that could be a crime thriller. People commit crimes in fiction all the time. 
but things <clears throat> happening that go against our sense of what is naturally possible or mm-hmm. allowable. And again, that doesn't have to be supernatural. Something like Psycho is a horror film. Most slasher or home invasion horror films don't have anything supernatural in them, but they still offend our sense of what's right and appropriate. And that is what scares us. A home invasion horror is horrifying because your home is supposed to be the place where you're safest. That's supposed to be like a sacred rule that can't Mm. be violated. And in this, it is. Something like Psycho is horrifying, not just because a lot of murders happen, but because it blurs the boundaries that we rely on as a society to just get through life. Somebody is both a son and the son's mother at the same time. Somebody is vulnerable in the shower where you're supposed to be just naked and left alone. Yeah, that's a really great starting point for this conversation uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, because you're starting with this idea of cosmic horror Mm -hmm. and a very specific kind of supernatural horror where for H.P. Lovecraft, the when he's talks about natural order, he takes that very seriously because he's not talking about something like the Conjuring movies, ghost stories. I mean, he may have that in mind as well, but... Uh, Obviously, like, a ghost story that offends the laws of nature because the dead are coming back to life, and and that's, you know, that's typical classic horror, but he's talking about something more than that. Because that's rooted in folklore, and there's a sort of hand-waving appeal to magic to explain what's going on. Uh, something something magical is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, maybe he, maybe what he did was to find in that kind of horror something deeper and to bring it out yes. in his uh, quasi-science fiction view of cosmic horror, which is that it's not merely that there's some kind of magical force mm-hmm. that can bend the rules of reality. It's that the, the laws of nature, which he takes very seriously as the, the bastion of the enlightenment and all civilization, those are a lie. Yes, they're, they're shown to be much more flimsy and vulnerable and arbitrary than we really want to think. Yeah, and it's not really supernatural in the sense of saying or appealing to magic it's that the be is that cthulhu he's not supernatural to himself no he's only supernatural to us because our view of the world is so confined and constrained by by our brains yes and that's that's another part of it it's that the horror comes from realizing how small and confined our perspective was um, in comparison to everything else that's really out there. Right. And I think that that brings us into Twin Peaks and especially this episode and things that we've talked about in the past, which is somebody like Bob, I think, can totally fit into this view of cosmic horror. Right. Bob is someone who for something that acts according to his own rules that really have nothing to do with ours and can't be persuaded or confined by our rules. And that leads to 
human suffering, which breaks down barriers that we think are natural and inviolable, like barriers within a family. Yes. Bob, if we take the lore fairly literally, Bob mm-hmm. is a dimension hopping parasite. Yes. That's feeding on our suffering. Mm-hmm. It's really not, you could say it's in the same ballpark as something like Cthulhu. Sure. Uh, an ancient force that is returning mm-hmm. to devour us. Yeah. And that puts us in our place in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, I think Lynch's view is, is much less pessimistic mm-hmm. and uh, reactionary um, for a couple of reasons. But uh, before we get into that, I do want to uh, pick up on this move you're making from the the from horror that breaks the rules of of nature mm-hmm. to these other rules that get broken. Because yes. I think you're kind of extending uh lovecraft's view but in an important way that's very relevant here well which i think is, oh, go ahead. right what what i guess i'm getting at is is one of the rules that is being broken that is revealed to have been broken in this episode of twin peaks finally although if you've been listening to us you've been spoiled is that Lara's killer was leland that leland is the one who sexually assaulted her since she was a little girl and who violently raped and killed her finally and as a society, we want to believe that things like that don't happen, that parents yeah. don't do that to their children, that children are safest with their parents, they're safest within their homes. And what is revealed is that Lara, this murder victim whose mystery we've been following, was least safe in her home, mm-hmm. that all of the horrors didn't come from outside. <clears throat> they didn't come from scary strangers or drug dealers or... Um, you know, violent working class men like Leo Johnson or Jacques Renault, they came from an upstanding citizen who was supposed to be the person protecting her the most. Mm-hmm. And that is revealed to not actually be a law of nature, but a law of society. It's social mores that prevent things like that from happening as much as anything else. And those are flimsy. Yeah, I think that's important because uh, unlike in Lovecraft, the well, it was, you can take Lovecraft to be, his horror to be metaphorical. Mm-hmm. And when you do it, usually it's a metaphor for yes. an extremely right-wing view of the world. But here in Twin Peaks, the I, it's important that the, yeah, the supernatural element is almost a metaphor for the, yes, the... Um, the, the, these laws, they're not like, we don't, we, they're not laws of physics or gravity, but we right. almost believe in them even more strongly. Yeah. We think that taboo against breaking these rules is sort of natural and ingrained in us from birth, really. Yeah. They are the social rules. Yes. They, it's the social structure mm-hmm. of reality that is maybe more immediate. Yes. Uh, to me, at least. Mm-hmm than uh the newtonian physics or whatever right and and so that's where this show becomes a lot more uh a lot richer i think than the stories of lovecraft because Mm -hmm. 
you you can uh, the horror becomes a gateway into some of these social and economic anxieties. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. Because those are the things that are those are the uh, things that seem to be solid that are being transgressed here. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, to unpack this a little more, I have my own quote mm-hmm. that I found online. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't find it in a book? Well, it's in a book, Okay. Uh, but I didn't read that book. All right. So this is Freud on the Uncanny. He wrote a whole essay. Yes, classic. A classic. And um, what what is it in German? It's like unheimlich. Heimlich. Yeah, unheimlich, which literally means unhomely. Yes. Which is interesting in its implications. Yeah, Yeah, especially here, unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. But. But like not what yes the home is taken for granted as something that is like safe and familiar and not horrible and not horrifying, which is interesting. Yes, but also interestingly, it's from what I was reading, uh, it seems like Heimlich uh, ha- now has a different meaning or an extended meaning, which well, is secret or the maneuver. Yeah, the. <laughs> It's, yeah, the maneuver is really important. Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, if someone's choking and you don't do the Heimlich maneuver, that's, that's, un- that's uncanny. That's uncanny. It's Lynchian, really. Mm-hmm, right. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, Heimlich, it seems, means secret or clandestine. Yeah, right. What there's, goes on behind closed doors. There's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, uh, Unheimlich is usually translated as uncanny. And in English, it's uh, it comes from it's the same root as can, but it means knowing. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, etymologically, it goes back to the same roots as gnosis hmm. and words like that. Right. And, and apparently, this is through Scots as a dialect. Hmm where that meaning was uh, maintained yeah. a lot longer. Right. So it's if it comes from gnosis, that's really interesting because it implies not just um, not just something known in the way we think of it as isn't like a fact that you know or an impression that you've gotten mm-hmm. or even something you're familiar with. It's, it's rational knowledge. Yes. It, it's something belonging to an ordered system of knowledge. Yes. So that's the uncanny, mm-hmm. at least etymologically. Yes. An etymological uh, explanation doesn't need to be correct, but I think mm-hmm. it's enlightening here. And so here's Freud's quote. The uncanny is in reality nothing new or alien, but something which is familiar and old established in the mind and which has become alienated from it only through the process of repression. Mm-hmm. Of course, when Freud is talking about repression, what he means, uh, what what is repressed for Freud are the desires and fears of early childhood. Yes. And I don't think that applies here, but I do think to just e- extend it a little bit, there's a lot of repression in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. 
but what is being repressed are social forces, the history of the town, mm-hmm. nature itself being tamed through the process of, uh, you know, cutting down the trees mm-hmm. and cutting them up for lumber. There's a collective guilt being repressed. Yes. The um, and and so there's all these forces under the surface mm-hmm. that only do their work because we don't acknowledge them. Yes, and that's again back to Twin Peaks. That's something we've been talking about in all of these episodes. Is what what is Cooper not noticing? What is uh, the sheriff's department not noticing and how much is that really willful even if it's unconscious how much are they refusing to see about Twin Peaks mm-hmm. yeah that's that's what Twin Peaks as a community demands mm-hmm. is a reduced level of awareness yeah a kind of sleep or somnambulance mm-hmm. and yeah, I think it's interesting to see that as uh, an uh, akin to Lovecraftian horror and even expand it into this very Lovecraftian persona of Bob mm. and this mythos of different dimensions, different timelines. Yes, and the sense that there's this power in the woods that is much older than certainly Twin Peaks, but maybe any human civilization. Exactly. And, and it's important that when it presents itself, it is somehow both shocking and familiar. Right. Right. It should always feel like it's something... It should feel shocking, but predictable. It should feel like you are surprised, but you should have known it all. I think that that is how the yes. reveal of Leland as Bob feels in the episode. Right. And, and maybe that's the essence of horror is, mm-hmm. is the feeling of that something that the horrible thing is inevitable mm-hmm. and that, you know, it's not just terror. Yeah. The genre is not called terror. And I think there's a good reason. It's what happens afterward. How does the horrible thing change your view of reality? And is there maybe a, does it play into something that was gnawing at you before? Yeah, it's not just that rules of either nature or social rules that we think of as natural because we rely on them so much. It's not just that they have been broken that's scary. It is the fact that within the horror piece, the film, the short story, the novel, the TV episode, they're never put right. And we are also given the sense that they were never right to begin with. They were never right to begin with. And that's all over this episode, this creeping sense of dread. Mm -hmm. And And very literally, we're told from the pieces of Laura's diary that Cooper reads from that this has been going on for years. Yes. Yeah, and that's and that it was literally repressed mm-hmm. by Laura. Yep. And it was the end of the repression. The yeah, the um the ab reaction 
mm-hmm. of that repressed feeling that requires her death. Yes. But that's standing in for all these other things that are repressed, mm-hmm. even the specter of nuclear energy, mm. which is it really a big part of of the first two seasons, but yes. um, as part of the return. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe another interesting wrinkle on cosmic horror because mm-hmm. with nuclear energy, there's a sense that human beings are are breaking the laws of nature. And doing it in a way that takes advantage of a power that was always there. It was right. always in the atom. We just had to split it. But once we split it, we couldn't put it back together right. again. It was over. We had already done it. Firewalk with me. Yes. You, you call the fire to do your bidding, but then it consumes you and mm-hmm. you become the fire. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, where where I want to go with this now. Well, have we answered the question? Is, is, <laughs> is this horror? Is Twin Peaks horror? I think it is. I think this episode is. I think this episode reveals the entire show to be horror because it reveals what we've been watching all along, which is not just a murder mystery. It's, it's a story about these rules being broken in a way that can never be put right. And it just keeps happening. That's what the giant says. It's happening again. It keeps happening. But I think it's important that it's the, uh, it's the appearance of rules being broken Mm -hmm. that reveals the rules were never real to begin with. Yeah. They were never followed. Right. And that ties it in both with the Freud's uncanny, Mm -hmm. which is that these things were always there and Lovecraft's view of cosmic horror, which which is is that revealing all of those rules to be very flimsy. That our worldview was false. Mm -hmm. Cthulhu's worldview is correct. Yeah. Um, and, and that doesn't uh, make Cthulhu good. It just means it doesn't matter. We're just ants. That's the Lovecraftian view. Yeah. Now, fortunately, uh, Lynch's view was not so pessimistic because he yes. also finds hope in the uh, in the breaking down of the existing order. Yes, he thinks that the blurring of boundaries can also be very beautiful and creative. Right. And there are there, you know, there are forces like Bob, but also forces like the giant. Mm-hmm. If everything we know is uh I don't want to say a lie, but if it's limited, if there's something on the other side of our knowledge, it could be very bad, but it could also be very good. Mm-hmm. And if the rules that we thought of as natural and inviolable are actually not, if they're all just made up, right? that is very horrifying, but it can also be very freeing. It can mean that we are capable of much greater things than we thought, but also worse things. (laughs) It can go either way. Yes, I think ultimately Lynch doesn't have this pessimistic scientific view of the world. Mm-hmm. He, his view is more uh, influenced by transcendental meditation. Yes. As far as I can tell in broad strokes, he seems to believe that 
that we are all one consciousness that creates the reality that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, uh, I don't know if I have strong feelings about that one way or the other, but mm-hmm. I think the way that it's presented in Twin Peaks is very rich because ultimately what Bob is somehow both alien and mm-hmm. yet just the manifestation of everything in the town, this community mm-hmm. that has been repressed. Yes. It's what has to be denied, but which ha- has created Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I-, I feel like it's kind of hard to really nail it down. Yes. I agree. But it's not the, it's not Lovecraft's alien universe no. in which we're ants. No, it's, it it's not the, cynical. It's something alien that we create mm-hmm. in our relations with each other. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure we'll get back to this when we talk about the final scene of the episode in depth. But I think whatever power or possibility in the universe that could create someone like Bob, it also allows for the kind of shared emotional experience that Cooper and Donna and Bobby all have at the roadhouse at the end, where they're all aware of something and feeling it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's heartbreaking because what they're aware of is violence. Mm. They're, they're aware that something terrible happened and it obviously shakes them. But the fact that they can all feel that at once, the fact that they're able to is I think, beautiful it's meant to be beautiful it's meant to show their sensitivity and their goodness even someone like bobby who is often a jackass right yeah and i think the reason there's collective recognition of loss is the is because the the tragedy is created collectively yes and points to social realities Mm -hmm. that bind us. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting. It's that it's Cooper and Donna and Bobby who share that. Not, not James who also loved Laura and was close to her and was close to Maddie for a time. Mm -hmm. Um, Bobby is kind of the odd man out there, but Bobby is really the only character who in an earlier episode said that there was any kind of collective responsibility for Lara's death. Yes. He was the only person to recognize that. Yeah. Well, well, this question of collective responsibility is interesting um, because a lot of times horror seems to be about the evil within. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I was... Just, uh, I was comparing uh, Twin Peaks to Blue Velvet, mm. which I think is very explicitly about the darkness within. Yes. Because w- we see Jeffrey Beaumont as a reflection of Frank. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, he has Frank within him, yes. but has to integrate that or tame it mm-hmm. or do something with it or maybe repress it. Mm-hmm. It's ambiguous. Has he conquered Frank by the end or not? Yeah. And I was thinking, well, is does that exist here? Is there a sense 
um, that Bob is the evil inside of all of us. Mm. And I don't really get that sense when I'm watching Twin Peaks because Bob is so alien. Yes. And none of the characters really see themselves in Bob the way Frank sees him or Jeffrey Beaumont sees himself in Frank. Yes. So I think it's the evil in Twin Peaks is definitely the evil of that is within the community. Yeah. And this collective turning of heads away from the pain and suffering that's going on in the community. Bob feeds on that. He goes after it. And what the right. community does is look away from it. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, right. And that, so that's what's horrible and monstrous is that we like to think of ourselves as individuals making our individual choices, mm -hmm. but everything we do is conditioned and contingent on these larger social and economic realities. Yes. And that, you know, a lot of the characters that were involved in Laura's death in some way, even if tangentially, like Ben Horn, you know, they're, they're really bad. But somehow the evil that happens to Laura is much greater than the sum of its parts and the sum of their individual mm -hmm. malevolence. Yes. They all have, most of them, not, not Leo, I guess, or people like that. But even Ben Horn, Bobby, a lot of these are characters with uh, a certain, that aren't totally evil or lost. There's mm -hmm. good in them. Yes. And yet they can do something so monstrous or be part of something much more monstrous through their interactions with each other. Yeah. On that note, I think something that's small but really important is how often men on this show, when they're straight up asked, did you kill Laura Palmer? Their response is, I loved her. Which is not a defense and it's not a denial. Right. It's supposed to be, but I think that's really revealing of the mindset they all seem to have, which is that their love for Laura sort of inoculated them against any meaningful mm. harm of her. Right. Not not that it protected her, but it it prote protected and prevented them from doing anything that would hurt her. That's interesting. But <clears throat> that's not true. That's not how love works and that's not how their love for her worked. Nobody's love for Lara really did her any good. That's interesting. It's almost like the the dark side of what James was saying to Maddie mm -hmm. about how he wants that feeling of love to last because yeah. when he feels that feeling, he feels like nothing can hurt them. Yeah. But it's just a feeling. Mm -hmm. And in his case, it is innocent. Yeah, it is. But... For someone like Ben Horn, his love is toxic. Or at the very least, it's it's neutral. Like it's just worthless. Right. Yeah, because he he's loving uh, he loves an idea mm -hmm. of Laura. Yeah. I think but that idea it. is is um suffocating mm -hmm. to the real thing. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's see. I have a couple of notes here. Um, you know, I think that there is a sense in horror mm -hmm. of the breaking down of opposites. Mm -hmm. That in life there is death. Right. In death there is life. Yes. Hence the zombie. Mm -hmm. the, the vampire. vampire the ghost. Right. And there's something unsettling just about those those uh, folkloric elements in themselves. Um, it's almost like it's the excluded middle mm -hmm. that has to come back or that, that reasserts itself. Yes. Uh, and that's interesting. There's an interesting connection there with the dialectical view of Twin Peaks is mm -hmm. uh, this unfolding of energies mm -hmm. and forces, mm -hmm. which contain the seed of their own destruction. Okay. You know, and uh, we've kind of touched on this before, but the, uh, you know, we can interpret all this in the shadow of the destruction of the mill. Hmm. Say more about that. Well, because what's repressed is the truth about Twin Peaks as a um, as a stand-in mm -hmm. for desires. Okay. Um, a stand-in on top of um, the brute facts of history, including the fact that the same generative logic that created the mill and the jobs in the town yes. will also destroy the mill and destroy those jobs. Right. Always have to make more money. Yeah, and that's reasserting itself um, as this kind of uh, shadow created or projected mm -hmm. out of everything that's been denied. Yes. You know, there it's the built-in obsolescence of the American dream, this paradise of the smallholder. Yes. I, I read one analysis of American horror. I wish I could remember where, so I could accurately cite it that talked about the fact that all horror that's set in America, especially things like haunted houses, ghost stories, really almost all of it is dealing with the guilt we all have about the fact that we're on stolen land. We right. were all Americans walking around on a grave. Yeah. And our civilization, our home, our happiness, our security is all the result of a genocide. It's the result of murder and rape and starvation and disease and theft. And mm. that wasn't something that just happened. It was deliberately done in order to give us those things. And so much of the horror that Americans make and write is about that guilt and that anxiety that we're going to have to pay for it somehow. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many American stories take place? Oh, the explanation for why this hotel is haunted is because it's on an Indian burial ground. That's yes. such a cliche, but the fact is the whole country is an Indian burial ground. And so it's Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And, and with the relics of that past present and visible everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's not really something that the show addresses head on. No, no. And you could even say the presence of Hawk is maybe something that, that helps us keep that buried because yes. he's been assimilated. He, he doesn't seem to be angry. He's uh, literally made himself part of the social structure that polices Twin Peaks. Right, yes. And he doesn't seem to have any real conflict about that. No. And so I think that, yeah, I don't think we can say necessarily that this tension was something the writers really spelled out for themselves. No. But there's something in this melange of uh, Native American history, the folkloric darkness in the woods, mm -hmm. the scenes of the lumber mill. Yes. And log trucks. Um, and the way they are sort of um, split and cut and matched with scenes of just pure nature, birds, the wind in the trees, a waterfall. Yeah, there's a real sense that 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 we've attempted to tame or domesticate or subjugate something that is there before. Mm -hmm. But we have an anxiety about it. Yeah. That the very fact that it was there before mm -hmm. is some is sort of leaves us with the impression that we are finite. Yes. We weren't always here. Yes. And therefore there will be a time when we're not here anymore. When we're the burial ground. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's always the anxiety of the oppressor is that you will become and in some sense already are what you have oppressed. Yes. And whatever you deal out, mm -hmm. it will come back to you. Yes. And you can see this quite literally in statements made by even very well-meaning slave owners of the founding generation who wanted to free slaves, or at least said they did. They were terrified of freeing them, not because they thought they couldn't handle freedom, but because they were convinced that Black people, once they were able to, would murder every white person in the country. Right. Yes, the the in the antebellum South there was this interesting double think. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, slavery is justified because slaves are happy and content. Yes, and slaves and slave owners lived in very, very intimate relationships, even when they weren't raping their slaves. You know, slaves took care of their children, they dressed them, they made their food, they cleaned them, they right. did everything. You can't not trust someone who does all of that for you. Yes. And yet on the other hand, they preached constant vigilance. Mm -hmm. The constant vigilance of the militia, the yes. state militias against uh, slave rebellions, mm -hmm. which had happened. Yes. And which in, in Saint-Domingue, where mm -hmm. it was successful. Yes. And that really, really and, scared them. And, and America has pay, made 
paid Haiti pay for that ever since. Yes. Right. So, uh, uh, yes. So yeah, to wrap a bow around it, what on the one hand, slaves are content on the other hand, at any moment, they're always, they're all going to rebel against us. And yes. that's the sublimated acknowledgement mm -hmm. that that's what we would do. Yeah. That's what we've been doing. That if I was a slave, yeah, I wouldn't be happy about it. Mm -hmm. And that maybe death is what we deserve for yeah. that crime. Yes. Very maybe maybe being haunted by the ghosts from an Indian burial ground is what we deserve for living on top of it. Yes, I think there's a real guilt there at the core of these attitudes. Yes. A guilt that manifests itself as doubling down. Mm -hmm. The more guilty you feel, the more you have to double down. Exactly. And assert your innocence. Mm -hmm. And assert your your false reality as the real one and impose it on others. Yes. The more Twin Peaks destroys its own environment and destroys its knowledge of the past, the better Norma's pies have to be. <laughs> yes, but then that same logic threatens Norma's pies in the return. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it's the same logic. Yes. Is the grinding work of suffering and change. It's it's the what created Twin Peaks is destructive. It's fire. Mm -hmm. So the small shop owners have to be bought out. Yes. The workers have to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. The town has to become a playground for the elites. Yeah. These things are inevitable and threaten us where we most feel safe because we always felt safe in the arms of of this uh, economic reality mm -hmm. where the, the factory workers and mill workers can keep their jobs forever and always have enough income to live comfortably yeah. and be safe from harm and crime mm -hmm. and save up enough for retirement and a little more even to pass on to their their children and pay for college. Right. And then because their children will go to college, their children will have an even better life. Mm -hmm. That's where we feel safest. Yes. And that's where the danger is. Yeah. That's again, that's where the horror is. It's not just learning that that life is not safe and not going to last forever, but learning that it it was never eternal, even when it seemed like it was. It was always something that was created out of destroying what came before. Exactly. The call is coming from inside capitalism. <laughs> and it always was. It always was. All right. So I think, I think we've made a pretty good case that Twin Peaks, especially this episode. Yes. Uh, is horror in some sense. Yes. And I think it's deliberately... It's dealing with horror tropes and horror conventions, I think, especially in Maddie's death scene, which we'll talk about more in depth. But right. I also think that everything leading up to Maddie's death, it's just very deliberately and suspensefully done. Everything just feels okay. slightly off. And yeah. it's very, very unnerving, even though I've seen this episode like half a dozen times. 
I've seen the show a ton of times. I knew what was coming, but right. still when I watched it, I felt so unnerved. Yeah. Every, every conversation seemed just a little odd. Everyone was sitting or interacting mm -hmm. in ways that seemed just wrong. Yeah. Um, especially like the scene with Maddie and um, Leland and Sarah when she tells them she's leaving early in the episode. We'll talk about that more in depth too. But well, yeah, I mean, just maybe... the the way it's the way it's shot, the way they're so close together and they seem so small in the frame, the way the camera seems to be kind of spying on them. It just yes. They, they're all happy. They all think they're fine. But you know something's wrong. You know something's yeah. coming. Well, I think we should get into it. Because yeah. horror as a genre isn't mm -hmm. just defined by its thematic content. It's in the it's form. It's style. It's form and style. And it's really inseparable. Mm -hmm. And this, obviously, this episode was directed by David Lynch. Yes. And he, he brings his whole bag of tricks to bear on creating a sense of foreboding. Yeah. So what does he do? We have longer takes, mm -hmm. slow camera movements. Yeah, like even there are just so many more scenes where people are just like at the very beginning, you know, they're all the, all the guys, all the dudes at the mm -hmm. sheriff's station are just lined up drinking their coffee. And it's just the shot of them just standing there before anybody speaks is just like a hair too long. And it just makes it seem like they're waiting for something. Yep. The editing is very uh, deliberately uh, calculated mm -hmm. to put you off guard yeah. with scenes that seem to begin or end a bit too early yeah. or too late. Mm -hmm. So, and also the compositions, these distinctive Lynchian compositions where it's hard to put your finger on it but it's off they're you they're often they're always asymmetrical yes but not usually in a really obvious way they're not um he actually doesn't use a lot of dutch angles no or really strange um angles or, sh or trick shots mm -hmm. to get his effects yeah it's just composite it's it's composition that is just somehow off mm-hmm and uh, you definitely see that in that opening scene. Um, and and certainly in the scene with Maddie in the Palmer house. Yes. And in fact, uh, why don't we talk about that? Okay. Because I think, and, and this really ties into the question of whether Twin Peaks is horror, because when I watched this most recently, mm -hmm. this scene, it was so clearly foreshadowing. Yeah, You absolutely. see all of the important things mm -hmm. from Maddie's death scene. It opens on the picture of Missoula, Montana. Right. And then, as you said, there's this creeping camera movement like they're being spied on mm -hmm. as it creeps and creeps over pictures of Laura. Yeah. Very important, including the famous one mm -hmm. that we often saw at the end yeah, of episode season right. one. It creeps and creeps. And to reveal, um, to reveal a happy family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and while they're talking, it continues to creep in a very unnerving way. Yes, I think it's a winner, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
And it's kind of viewing them from what seems to be another, it's not, like, not exactly another room, but there's so many things in the way. Yes. And I, um, I mean, we can talk more about the style, but I think also just thematically going back to what we were talking about, what happens in this scene? You just said, we see a happy family. What Maddie is doing in this scene and what I think is what ultimately leads to her death in much the same way that you said Lara's final conquering of her repression led to her death. Maddie is breaking the spell. Maddie is saying, we're not yeah. a family. I'm not your daughter. Yes. I can't stay with you forever. I have my own life that I'm going to go back to. Mm -hmm. She's she's looking at that happy family image yes. and saying, this isn't real. It's not, no. It never was. I was never your daughter. Yes. Yes, and Leland seems to accept that. Yes. Very surprisingly. He does accept it. And Sarah is surprised. Mm-hmm. You know, I forget the exact line of dialogue, but yeah. he says that, you know, yeah, we think you we think that, that, that that's best and mm -hmm. Sarah says we do. Yeah, yeah, and I just wanna mention Grace Zabriskie, who we get so little of in the show and mm -hmm. this rewatch I'm just realizing how little we see Sarah. Yeah. Um, but Grace Zabritsky is always so fucking good. She's yes. she's as good as Ray Wise, who I think is clearly the MVP of the show, mm -hmm. um, other than Cheryl Lee. But she's always memorable. She really makes Sarah feel like a real person. Yes, and Sarah quite clearly doesn't want Maddie to leave. Yep. And it's easy to understand why. No. Uh, you know, they're they're lonely, they're grieving still. Mm -hmm. It's only been like a few weeks. And the specter of that empty house must yes. be really intolerable. No, Sarah does not want to be alone with Leland in that house. Well, that's, a, that's another thing under the surface. Mm -hmm. But Leland is curiously zen. Yes. Yes. And, and this is another one of the few scenes mm -hmm. where Leland is he does the right thing he's loving mm -hmm. he tells her what he she needs to hear which mm -hmm. is that it's okay right and that she is supported mm -hmm. in this decision yes and supported in her independence maddie is an adult she's yeah and this really explicitly reveals what i think had been only implicit before is she's a couple years older than laura she has an apartment and a job she lives on her own usually yeah, that's a good point. Mm -hmm. And that's another part of why she wants to leave. She's being treated like a child here. She's only hanging out with high school students. Right. Well, that was part of the tragedy of Laura Palmer was the uh, all of that promise mm -hmm. is that she never got to be an adult. She yeah. was frozen right. in her teenage years mm -hmm. in the in-between state. Exactly. But now Maddie has a chance to grow up. Yeah. And to wake up from the dream of Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Even just to unregress from how she became a child again in Twin Peaks. Yep. And I think all of that is very important context uh, for why Maddie is murdered. Yes. Uh, but we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. um, it, overall, this scene is shows them to 
be very cramped in. Yeah, in they're sitting cluttered house. They're sitting so close together and they seem to at once take up a lot of space in the frame, but also be very cramped. They are like in a corner, all yes. three of them, when they could be much more spread out and would be more comfortable. Like the fact that Leland sits down in between or I'm sorry, Maddie sits down in between Leland and Sarah, where there right. really isn't space for a, a person. Yes. Um, it just, it visually uh, represents how claustrophobic this house is. Yes, and it's very intimate. Yes, but intimate in a way that is stifling. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's interesting that she does choose to sit between them. Mm-hmm. Well, it shows she feels safe doing yes, that. She is comforted mm-hmm. by them as they are comforted by her. Right. Maddie has no suspicions no. of them. And I think that is also what adds to the sense of dread that we see in this episode is that nobody consciously knows that anything terrible is coming. Nobody's scared that something terrible will happen. No, but everything in this scene comes back. Yeah. The picture of Missoula, mm-hmm. the record player. Yep. Even the cramped nature of the house mm-hmm. becomes the lack of a means to escape. Yes. And so when you know how it turns out and you watch the scene, it really feels, it makes it feel inevitable. Mm-hmm. And then also the fact that it's Maddie's death is framed as. The same thing happening again. Yeah. It's almost like she's in a recording. Yes. I think that's a good way to put it. Yes. There is no band mm-hmm. here. Uh, they're, they're stuck in automation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that's also part of horror. Yeah. This feeling of powerlessness mm-hmm. that the evil is inescapable. The bad thing is inevitable. Yes. Okay, so yes, I think. Um, do we want to then get into Maddie's death scene? Yeah, we should talk about it at length. Yes, uh, it's pretty heavy stuff. It's as terrifying and heartbreaking as anything David Lynch did his whole career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One interesting thing that I noticed in comparing this scene with, with scenes in actual horror movies mm-hmm. is that um, horror movies are often accused of making violence appealing or somehow playing on our desire to see violence. Yes. And what's interesting here, and and Lynch himself has explored that in Blue Velvet, as Mm -hmm. we said. Absolutely. This is some of the least appealing violence. No, it's really. (laughs) Ever filmed. It's really horrible to watch. And it's interesting to consider why why it's so unappealing, why... There's no part of you, I think, unless you're really far gone, Mm. that is watching that scene from the perspective of Bob or Leland. No, absolutely. And 
Yeah, there, so one thing, interestingly, that I think makes it horrifying is the lack of gore and blood mm. until the very end. Yes. There's just a little bit, like mm -hmm. he, there's blood like on her teeth and that's, that, that yeah. is very horrifying. Yes. But there's no knife. No. There's no, uh, you know, there's not, the, there's not, it lacks the kind of sexual, repressed sexual allure of, you know, the, the, of stabbing as penetration, like you sure. would see in a giallo or something. Sure, although I think the scene is very... They're sexual menace for yes. sure. Yes, yes. But we're denied... Um, Completion. The usual, yeah, the money <laughs> shot. Right. Of blood. Mm -hmm. Of beautiful, vibrant, cinematic blood. Yes. That crimson, you know, that... That... Uh, that's so horrible, and yet we love to see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's glamorous. It, there's no glamour in this scene. No, uh, all of the violence is done with fists. Yeah, punching or objects like or objects. household objects. It's just brute force. Mm -hmm. There's no gun, so there's no. You don't have that whole American mythos of mm -hmm. a firearms at play here. Yeah. Also, um, Bob as a, a figure is not someone you can really relate to. No. I mean, Frank Silva as an actor, he's not handsome. Mm -hmm. He's not really ugly. He's very striking. He has a striking face. Yes. But he's not, there, there's, not there's not the allure of either the attractive evil or the hideous evil. Yeah, right. And Ray yeah. Wise, it's it's a similar thing. I mean, yeah. you know, Ray Wise is a perfectly um, good-looking man, but um, you know, he's not. I don't know Patrick Bateman or uh, some impossibly beautiful person or an impossibly evil person. He's just a guy. Yep, Leland is just a guy, and even Bob, the demonic mm -hmm. force, yeah, looks like just a guy, mm -hmm. and he's wearing denim. His clothes are basically nondescript, mm -hmm. and uh, Bob's expressions and gestures are not relatable. They're almost animalistic in this scene. Yeah. As he is literally gibbering <laughs> and mm -hmm. slobbering and making inhuman noises that are very disturbing. Yes. Another comparison that I was making in my mind mm -hmm. is with the shower scene in Psycho. Mm, yeah. And I love that scene. Sure. But I think that even though that scene is very brutal mm -hmm. and a lot of the, the percussive score and the editing, they do kind of drive home the brutality of the act while also uh, cleverly making you think there's more gore and blood than there is. Sure. Um, I think that that those things also kind of glamorize the violence hmm. because there's so much formal beauty yeah in the way that that scene is edited right and almost a cold abstract beauty of shapes and images and rhythms on the screen yeah i and that's you know that's hitchcock i feel like almost every single hitchcock film should have the subtitle you like this don't you you right. sick little freak because he, he knew what people liked. He knew that people like violence. 
Yeah, and I'm not taking issue with that. Absolutely. And David Lynch, I think, has expressed similar views. Mm-hmm. That's why it's interesting to me that here, there's nothing in this scene that is trying to um, to connect with your with any anything within you mm-hmm. to make it to make you think, oh, I am I am sick. You know? Yeah. It's. I think that you're really with Maddie here. Yes. Or you are your powerlessness as a spectator yes. is similar to her powerlessness as a victim. Yeah, you are yeah, somebody yeah. who has seen all this happen, who has had this encroaching dread and this encroaching feeling that something is going to happen and that this was inevitable and you want to stop it, but you can't. And that's something that is very much a part of being an audience to horror. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember hearing stories about Shakespeare's Othello, which isn't horror, but its final scene where Othello finally kills Desdemona, maybe this is apocryphal, I hope it's not, but in in early performances of it, they would have to stop people from climbing onto the stage just to stop Othello from killing her. Yeah. Because that scene is so visceral and it takes so long and you know it's going to happen and you know you can't stop it and you know somebody should have done something to stop it and nobody did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The everything, uh, everything that the camera does and all the edits in this scene are calculated to make us feel like we're caught up mm-hmm. in the same way that Maddie's caught up. We are being dragged around. Yes. Powerless and caught up in something we don't understand. You know, because as the scene switches from from Bob to Leland, mm-hmm. which you could interpret as the two sides. Yes. Uh, a clear delineation mm-hmm. almost. Bob is the force of evil. Mm-hmm. Leland is just still grieving Laura as he blubbers, Laura, Laura, my baby. Yeah. But, you know, and that kind of makes sense intellectually, but it's always good to just check well how do i feel when i watch this and you don't feel relief when it switches back to leland absolutely not leland is committing at least as much of the violence leland is doing the talking yeah and even when he is saying laura laura these expressions of grief or Mm -hmm. apparent grief yes you see maddie's face Mm -hmm. and she goes through and then she just uh, Shirley displays so many different things and yeah. she's kind of coming in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a showcase for her as her last episode on the show, yes. as far as she knew. It's you're in the her perspective as someone who is having a meaning imposed upon her. Mm-hmm. This, whatever Leland's neurotic fixation on Laura was. Yes. Matt, that's something being imposed on Maddie. Yeah. That's not who she is. And however tender mm-hmm. Leland thinks he's being in this crazy dance. Yeah. Um, he is, he, he's uh, pushing, he's forcing Maddie into a role. 
and denying her autonomy. She she is alienated here. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what he did to Laura in the first place. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that that's what you feel when you watch the scene and the way that the camera is spinning with their movement. And then when the camera is fixed, they're, move, they're changing positions um, in frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we're, we're caught up in, in this thing that's not responsive to our preferences. Yes. And really put in the position of, of this woman who is being victimized. I don't know. I guess that sounds pretty obvious, but, um, no, I think, I think that's all there. Yeah, there's something about it that is very disturbing. And mm-hmm. that really gets to the heart of why why, why the, this sort of violence is so traumatic. Mm-hmm. It's not just Maddie's fear of death yes. and her actual death and the ramifications of a life cut short. Yeah. And it's not just her pain. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is betrayal. Yeah. But what's really horrifying more than that, mm-hmm. or on top of that, is this grotesque uh, role she's being forced into, mm-hmm. this grotesque dance. Yeah. Like she's a, a doll. Yeah, because in so many ways, her death had nothing to do with her. It was punishing her for refusing to be Lara anymore. And yeah. Uh, for trying to live her own life again and also a way for Leland to kind of relive and recapture that feeling of both molesting Laura, but also of killing her. And yeah, it was never about her. It was, it's really just what she said to Leland in an earlier episode. Everyone keeps expecting me to be Laura. They think I'm Laura, but I'm nothing like Laura. Right. Yes, and it becomes a kind of, you know, an awful parody of Mm -hmm. fatherly tenderness and grief. Yes. On multiple levels, because it's not just that he's trying to be a father figure to Maddie when we know he's not. It's the fact that we now know that his performance of that role with Laura was also corrupted from Mm -hmm. the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he keeps uh, he keeps crying Laura's name, and there's a hint of more than a hint. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this possessiveness about it. Yeah. Laura, Laura, my baby. Mm-hmm. It's like he's not really feeling grief. What he's feeling is a desire to continue possessing Laura even after death. Yes. And it's really horrifying. Mm-hmm. It's like he can't he he can't live without her, but he can't not kill her. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it's you know, is this the grief of a father, or is it the is this the grief of a lover? I think it's 
it's all of those things. And that's, that's what makes it horrifying again, because horror is about blurring those boundaries and acknowledging that someone can be a father to a young woman and also see himself as a lover who was absolutely sexually jealous of Lara and probably Maddie as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of the reason why he probably didn't want her leaving the house and going yes. on to living her own life is because what does independence mean for a beautiful young woman? It means sexual freedom. He doesn't want her to have that. Mm. Um, I think it's all of those things at once. It's not one thing or the other. Yes. Um, yeah, he kills her by by um, thrusting her head for head first into the picture of Missoula, Montana. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to yeah everything you were saying that that she wanted the, to end mm-hmm. the play. Yeah. But by Leland as the director mm-hmm. in a sense is saying no you can't leave because also, the, it yeah. ha- the the illusion has to be total and universal without boundaries and there's not, nowhere to go not just leland as the director but leland as the paterfamilias and that's also what i think is being gotten at here not just that yeah these boundaries were crossed the boundary of incest was crossed but that this kind of patriarchal view of the family where the father decides what his women folk get up to and mm. when they become independent, if they become independent, who they have sex with, whether they do, whether they don't. That is something that creates the conditions that can make sexual abuse and incestuous sexual abuse more likely. Mm-hmm. It all goes together. It's, it's not just saying that, you know, this, that Leland, this father did this terrible thing to his child and then to his niece because he wasn't just confused about what his role was. He thought that this was a part of his role. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah, like like it's almost that that same impulse that's leading him to like control these young women and kill them as like the ultimate expression of that control. That in other contexts looks just like parental authority and parental protectiveness, you mm-hmm. know, because the big bad world is dangerous out there. And this is something that, you know, the dread second wave feminists talk about all the time that this is one of the dirty bargains that women make with the patriarchy is like becoming convinced that the world is what's dangerous. So we cling to individual men to protect us, but it's often those individual men who do the most harm. Yeah, well, this this whole scene, I went back and, and did like a shot for shot mm-hmm. watch of this scene yeah. on YouTube. And it occurred to me that this scene could have almost been uh, written and directed by, you know, Andrea Dworkin. Oh yeah, totally. If not for the fact that Dworkin probably would have said, this is a horrible scene that, because, Glitch, just yeah. simply because, 
because it portrays violence against portrays women, it. that's the same as glamorizing. But really, it. the yeah. way that it's portrayed um, is totally in line with mm-hmm. with those themes from second wave feminism. Yeah, like, there's literally a scene where Maddie tries to escape, and she is hemmed in by the walls yes. of their suburban house. Mm-hmm. You know, she goes in one direction, there's a wall. Another direction, there's another wall. Mm-hmm. And she makes this really um, this really tragic gesture with her hands. Like, she realizes, she sort of shakes her hands upward, realizing, oh, God. There's no way out. There's no way out. And there's, she says something, and it's in slow-mo, so it's easy to miss, but she says, somebody help me. Somebody help me. But there's no one there. Because there's never anybody in the house but your family. Yes, and the house is well is set well apart from other houses on the mm-hmm. block. Yep, no one can hear so them. No one can hear her. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's really amazing to see some of these themes so thoroughly traumatized and made concrete in the action. Yes. Um, it's these walls that were supposed to protect. Mm-hmm. But now they're a prison. Yes. Um, and let's see, what, what else did I want to say? Um, also the dance, you know? Yeah. God. It, we, we had, there's a lot of dancing in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially Leland dancing. Yes, but there's also uh, there's Laura's. You know, we talked about Donna's Donna's retelling of the story about mm-hmm. how she and Laura um, had this sort of erotic adventure. Yeah, and Donna does this dance mm-hmm. where she's almost inhabited by Laura. Right, and it's this this. A dance of momentary freedom snatched from trauma. Mm-hmm. And we also see Audrey's dance, which is more like a restless dance of someone struggling against the confines mm-hmm. of their life. Yeah. But here, this is just completely mechanical mm-hmm. uh, perseveration uh, of... of Leland's solitude as someone who can only love by by making the object an extension of himself. Mm-hmm. And it just goes around and around. It's like the record yeah. that's reached the end and just keeps the needle keeps skipping, skipping, skipping. And what was the record he was listening to? It was Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World, which is such an interesting choice because it's a song about obviously simple pleasures and finding joy in things that are free um, that you don't have to buy and in in community. Yes. Um, And especially in, in, you know, the social fabric, you know, neighbors saying, how do you do to each other? And it's, yeah, when he keeps the record going and it just skips and skips and skips. It's like it's the record itself is revealing what's behind all of that, which is nothing. 
Yeah, because that, I mean, I do like that song. Oh yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily mean to be cynical about this song. No, we love um, you, Louis Armstrong. But, you know, in this context, I think it has a specific meaning for David Lynch here. Mm -hmm. It's, it is uh, standing in for that, that post-war mm -hmm. Eisenhower era yeah. delusion, mm -hmm. which Lynch himself has a real fondness for those Absolutely. days, which are his, his, his childhood, own childhood, right? You know, but he also can can recognize that everything everything that we are now living through came from that in some way, mm -hmm. um, and that that was also. The beginning of the Cold War, and that that period of prosperity itself was a result of the Second World War, which involved yes. an unprecedented level of violence and destruction. Yes, and it was temporary, mm -hmm. and it had to be temporary. Yeah, because the um, yeah, because the American dream was subsidized, literally mm -hmm. subsidized yeah. by the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. But only it, it was only possible because some people were cut out of it. Right. And because women had to occupy a specific role, not as the owner of those yes. uh, middle class houses, mm -hmm. but as the person doing the uncompensated labor. Yeah, and that's why I think to add to this, Sarah's presence in this scene is so important because it's like she's she's the final absurd version of uh, the housewife zonked out on Quake or something. <laughs> I mean, yeah. literally, she's yes. Leland has just drugged her yes. to keep her silent and accommodating and out of the way mm -hmm. and yeah. we find out in firewalk with me that he'd been doing this repeatedly yes this is a scene that um yeah it's not really explained here it's mm -hmm. just kind of creepy and weird how yeah. she comes crawling down the stairs yeah exorcist style mm -hmm. not, not exactly but you know it, it's creepy and weird and then she's unconscious and or, we see that he's ignoring her Yes, and it's explained that, he, that she's been drugged. Mm -hmm. It's not supernatural. No. Although she sees a white horse. Yes. And it's unclear. Is that a vision, like the giant is a vision, or mm -hmm. simply a hallucination? Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, you know, the this uh, post-war dream of the American idol is um is a recording yeah and it ends and he keeps trying to you know the the machinery keeps trying to make it work yeah it keeps turning the machinery keeps turning but there's nothing left on the tape there's no there there and so it's just the underlying machinery the continuous thud mm -hmm. of what's beneath and and leland is caught in this uh this barren circle mm -hmm. uh, of his evil it's just um and he's moving maddie where he wants her to be mm -hmm. and all the while grieving laura it's 
Like he's doing violence so that he can have the grief. Mm-hmm. He's making his own stimulus so that he can wallow in the response. Yeah. It's completely solipsistic. Mm-hmm. And Maddie is just there to complete the circuit yeah. of his own emotions. Mm-hmm. And that's evil. Yes. Yes, it's uh, using other people as means and not ends. Yes, and as force and making mm-hmm. her into an object. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, again, what always happened to Lara, and that's why it's so important that we see Lara so often in a frame. Yep. Because yeah. she's, she's commodified. She's literally wrapped in plastic. Yes, and how does Maddie die? Her face is driven into a frame. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, we actually get a perspective shot as she dies. Yes. Into the painting and into black. Mm-hmm. And that kind of underlines that she was always the audience's uh the stand, she, she, she was is who us. our sympathy yeah. lies with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when we see the floor spinning, that's what she sees. It's not why Leland sees. Even yeah. though Leland, Leland is spinning, and yet I think from Leland's perspective, he is motionless. Mm-hmm. Do you think we know she sees Bob at least some of the time? Do you think she sees Bob the whole time? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the horror for the audience comes from the back and forth and from the reveal that it contains that Leland was Bob all along. But is that also the horror for Maddie? Because she had seen Bob in a vision before. One thing that's so depressing about this scene Mm -hmm. is that Maddie never seems... Maddie seems to intuit very quickly yeah that there is nothing she can do yeah except escape and then Mm -hmm. that's foreclosed pretty quickly Mm -hmm. she never pleads for mercy or anything she never says uncle leland what are you doing no no which could mean that she only sees bob Mm. but i don't think so i don't think so. i think she sees that leland is bob and i think maddie had been revealed to be a pretty sharp person who grasped things pretty quickly and grasped the reality of things pretty quickly. Yeah. If she only saw Bob, Mm -hmm. then she would call for Leland. Yeah. If she only saw Leland, Mm -hmm. she might try to reason with him or ask him why he's doing these things. Yeah. I think she sees that they are one and the same. Yeah. I think she does. Poor Maddie. Well, here's here's a, another related question. Mm-hmm. We see Bob kissing Maddie. Mm. We're kind of slobbering on her, mouthing her, yeah, her chin in a really gross way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it always seems like he's about to kiss her on the lips, and yeah. he's just like, no, no, don't, don't do it. And he does it. And yet somehow it's almost worse than you just imagine it. I know. The, the whole scene is a masterclass in why sometimes it's more horrible to not show mm-hmm. everything that you could show. Yeah. 
because we know that there's sexual menace in this scene. Yes. But nothing really, there's there's not rape or anything. No. Um, it, it's enough that it's hanging over the scene. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the question, though, is uh, it cuts from Bob doing this to Leland, um, you know, whimpering mm-hmm. about Laura. Yeah. But it was when we don't, when we see Bob, is Leland doing the things that Bob is doing? Is Leland kissing her like that? I think so. And so from Maddie's perspective, it's, he's going back and forth from like kissing her and- Mm -hmm. And beating her. And crying about Laura. Yeah. Yes. do we want to say anything about the some of the stylistic tricks that are employed here? Um, hmm. You know, going back to the beginning of the scene, sure, where we see Leland smiling in the mirror, mm-hmm. uh, looking like he's gotten away with something. <laughs> yeah, well, he has. So uh, far, he Ray Weiss makes so many very distinct facial expressions Mm -hmm. in this scene. Yes. At first, he's almost like the cat that ate the canary. Mm -hmm. But then he looks more blank Mm -hmm. and kind of moves his lips a little, like he's pouting almost in the mirror. Yes. And then, of course, we see Bob. Mm -hmm. But Bob is looking very focused, Mm -hmm. which is extremely scary. Yes. And also making these awful noises. Almost like, like you're eating something and kind of murmuring in satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's this double exposure, right? And that's kind of the first of the tricks that that Lynch employs here. Mm-hmm. It's very well done. Yeah, very quick double exposure. Yeah, I almost thought really it might seamless. be like an early digital effect. I don't know if they were able to do that in 1990. No, I slowed it down to mm-hmm. make sure. Yeah. And it is just a double exposure. Yeah, it's... It really, kind of dissolved, basically. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, yeah, perfectly done. Um, and, uh, you know, so that double exposure shows that they're the same. Mm-hmm. But the other trick here is that as it cuts back and forth between Leland and Bob, the lighting for the Bob scenes is completely different. It's dark. Yes, yes, I noticed that too. It's dark with this spotlight mm-hmm. that creates this glare, almost like a crime scene photo or something. Or like he's on a stage. It's on a stage. Yeah. And she's forced to be the star. Mm-hmm. And also it's usually in slow motion for mm-hmm. the Bob scenes. And so it kind of distorts her voice in this really awful way. Yeah. Um, it, it often goes out of focus hmm. in the bop scenes. Yeah. Um, but then the violence is always committed by Leland. Yeah, and I think that's a very important choice. Um, nothing that happens here let, lets Leland off the hook. Um, both within the scene itself and the build-up to it and what we learn later about the preparation. 
Yeah. Um, it was planned. It wasn't a crime of passion. Yep, absolutely. This seems like a good place to stop. We found that there was so much to say about this episode that we're splitting this one up into a two-parter. So we will be back in a couple of weeks for the second half of our discussion of season two, episode seven. But for now, bye. See ya. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.